This is from Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Good morning. So during the Christmas season, Christians traditionally look at Jesus' birth and ask, what does this mean? We look at God come in the flesh, at the incarnation, uh, and we ask, what just happened? What is Christmas about? Um, so that's why for Advent this year, we are looking intently at Paul's lofty description of Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Uh, and this is one of the most exalted pictures of Jesus in the Bible. Um, and so we're moving slowly through this passage, one verse at a time. Um, to look at who Jesus is and what that means for us. Um, so today's passage tells us that the baby born in the manger is the God that created all things. Okay, so let me read the verse for us. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So as we look at this first, we're going to consider three things, the creator, the invisible and the rescue plan. So the creator, the invisible and the rescue. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this Christmas season. We ask that you would prepare our hearts um, to receive you. God, make us aware of of our need for a savior um, and make us aware of what it means that our savior came um, as a baby in a manger. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so, first, the Creator. So, to start, we learn that there is a Creator. The world is not just there. All right? It was created by a person. Now, historically, there have been pretty much three views of where the world came from. So, first is the world was created as the chaotic result of a cosmic battle among warring gods. Okay, so that's one view. Um, or second, the world wasn't created at all. It, it's just there. Um, the world developed as a result of natural causes, um, and it evolved according to impersonal forces. Uh, and so any design or purpose um, we see is just apparent. Um, it's not real. It's just, it's just the way it is. Um, and so finally, there's the biblical account. And the biblical account is that the world was created by a personal God who alone is supreme, um, not the result of a cosmic chaotic power struggle, um, but the creative work of a God, of a good sovereign who brought order out of chaos. So that's what this verse means. There's a person behind it all. Now, there's a tremendous difference in the significance of these accounts. So if you believe the world arose out of warring forces, then life is going to be chaotic, chaotic and harsh 
and unpredictable. If you believe the world is just there, um, then there's no personal force behind it. There's no meaningful force directing it. You know, it might feel like there is at times, um, but there isn't any deep meaning to discover or to follow. Um, But if you believe that there's a good, sovereign, and personal God who lovingly and creatively made everything, that's a completely different story. Now, it would be fair to ask, okay, now, how should I know that this is true? Right? Because you might not just want me to read the verse and be like, okay, I'm done. Um, Well, think about anything in the world that exists. Okay? So, imagine you're outside and you found a rock. And uh, it looks like it could be an ancient artifact or something. Right? And you want to know, is this just a rock or was it created by somebody? Was it shaped? Right? Is it an artifact or was it just there? Okay? So what would you do? Would you see if you could look in the rock and find a person who was the creator in the rock and say, you know, there he is. Right? Is that what you'd do? Right? No, you'd look for evidence for whether or not this rock um, looked like it had been intentionally shaped by somebody. Right? You don't look to see the creator in the rock. Um, You don't learn that an ancient civilization made this rock because you see them in it. You look for their clues. So based on the characteristics of the rock, you figure out what is the best explanation for how this came to be. Okay. Or right. Consider you find a a typewriter with a piece of paper and there's typing on it. And you want to know if this had been written as by an author intentionally telling a story or whether it was just the random output of a monkey at a typewriter. Okay? So, would you look at the words and ask, which of these words is the author? Right? Of course not, right? The author is not an object in the story. You'd look at the story for evidence of an author. You'd look for meaning and syntax and grammar. Um, You'd look for whether it makes more sense that the story came about as the result of an intentional author telling a story, or whether it just looked like a monkey was hitting at the keys. Um, So if you look at the world, what do you see? Well, you see a world that all scientists agree had a beginning. At one point, there was nothing, and then suddenly, there was something. You see a world with incredible regularity. You know, we can do science precisely because uh, the world is governed by scientific regular laws. If the world was just sort of haphazard and random, we, we couldn't do science. We see beauty and it fills us with awe and wonder, right? So, you know, that response could just be the a byproduct of evolution. It could just be, you know, neurons firing in our brain, in which case beauty is really just an illusion. It wouldn't really be real. Um, but we believe deeply that when somebody we love dearly looks at us and tells us, I love you, they're not just describing chemical reactions in their brain and saying this is how it feels. We have a sense of justice and morals, right? We, and we believe that these things are real. We don't believe that they're just neurons firing in our brain. We don't believe that morals and justice are just, well, every civilization agrees on what that is. Oh, boy. Um, 
right? We think that there, there's real moral obligation. Um, and that's why we, we cry out when we hear stories of people sacrificing their lives um, because we believe deeply that sacrifice is meaningful. It's not just something that's nice for them, right? It moves us. And we have a deep sense that there is meaning to be found in the world and that the world is not the way it ought to be. Right? Nobody is really you do you or YOLO all the way down to their bones. Right? We know that we need to live for more than ourselves. There must be something bigger than ourselves that we're living for. And it's not just up to us to decide what that is. So when we see evil and suffering in this world, right, we're revolted because we think this ought not be so. Right? Now, in nature, animals eat their children all the time. But when we see children starving in Yemen because there's a civil war, we cry out and lament. We don't just say, well, just like the animal kingdom. Right? It might be natural in the animal world, but it's not right for people. How do we know that? When we say genocide, we don't say, well, that's just what that culture thinks is okay. Right? We shake our fists and we say, this must be stopped. How do we know that? When we see people commit atrocities and yet they die in their beds at an old age, you know, we don't say, well, they were able to get away with it. Right? We think somebody should make them pay. It's not right. You know, it's, it's possible that such a world just is, right? It's possible there's no person behind it. Um, but one person surveyed some of the scientific evidence um, for a creator, and he said, you know, the probability of there just randomly being a world like the one that we see is it's probably less likely than you dealing yourself four aces four times in a row. You know, it could happen. It could just be chance. But, you know, if you're in the Wild West and that happens, you're going to be shot. But a lot of us, we look at the world and we say, well, I'm willing to, to take a chance. It's much, much more likely that we have these intuitions about love and beauty and morals and meaning and that there was once nothing and now there's something because there's a personal God of justice and beauty who created us in his image. If there isn't a personal God of justice and beauty, and if you aren't made in his image, then we shouldn't expect our senses of justice and morality and beauty to be real. So you choose. Either your deepest health convictions are true, and there's a personal God who made you in his image, or not. Um, so Leonard Bernstein, who is definitely not a Christian, uh, so he said this about Beethoven. He said, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, that's the word. When you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant. Beethoven has the power to make you feel at the finish something is right in the world. There is something that checks throughout that follows its own law consistently. Something we can trust that will never let us down. Right, if that was his response just to listening to great music, how much more should we respond 
to our deep intuitions about justice and love and meaning. So we see there's a creator um, who made all things. Um, we also see that the world was created for God. Right? So this world, it means the world is not meaningless. There's a purpose. If the world just is, right, um, if it's just the result of impersonal, natural forces bouncing around, then there isn't any real deep fundamental re- meaning in the world. You can uh, create your own meaning, but let me tell you, that meaning will let you down. Now, this is something we talk about a lot at CBC, so um, if you want to hear more about that, you can just keep coming. Um, but a created meaning is more fragile than discovered meaning. And creating your own meaning is incapable of satisfying you. But the world has a purpose. It was made for God. But there's a catch. It's not about you. Um, And, you know, in our society, there are really two ways that people sort of look at at the world and think about the universe, capital U. Um, Either there's no meaning or purpose and you just make up your own. Or there is, and we foolishly think that the universe revolves around us, right? So the universe might be impersonal and indifferent to us, and, you know, we just have to survive. Or everything revolves around us, and, you know, the universe is going to work everything out for us, right? Those are sort of the ways that we think about things. Um, But that's not what this passage says. This passage tells us that all things were created for Jesus, not for you, but for Jesus, So you might be sitting there asking yourself, why is this good news? Right? Buzzkill, right? Newsflash, the world's not about you. Merry Christmas. Um, Holiday cheer. Um, Well, this is why it's good news. Remember, the world was created by a personal God of justice and beauty, and you were made in his image. Your greatest good, the thing that is best for you, is to have more of God. So, what do you long for? All of us, in the quiet of our hearts, there are times when we cry out for more. Maybe it's success, maybe it's family, maybe it's reconciliation, maybe it's to be beautiful and healthy, maybe it's to be appreciated. Let me save you the trouble. None of these things will be good enough. These are good things. But your longing for family, for beauty, for comfort are only going to be satisfied in the one who made you for those things. God gave you those longings because he is the ultimate fulfillment. St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. It's Good for you that everything is made for God. So Pastor John Piper, he likes to say that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Right? When you are most satisfied in God, when you look at God and you find him your greatest treasure, your greatest longing, that brings God glory. And that's what the world was created for, for God. And for you to be cosmically satisfied in God. For God to bring you great delight. So the world isn't about you, and that's good news for you. 
So there's a creator. Second, the invisible. So Paul tells us that all things were made in Christ. And then he goes on to say visible and invisible. So Paul is saying there's more to the world than meets the eye. Um, So some of you might want to roll your eyes at this point because you think, oh, gosh, talk about the supernatural. You know, please, can't we grow up? Um, And if that's you, I just want to remind you that it is a historical fact that modern science emerged not during the Enlightenment, not out of pagan societies, not out of secular societies, but out of Christian Europe. Right? Remember, it was the belief in the regularity of the world created by God. Um, so, for example, modern genetics. All right, you don't have to answer. Right? Gregor Mendel, who was an Augustinian friar. That's, that's the guy who gives us genetics. So science is great, and it developed because of the belief that God created all things with order that we could discover. But there's a limit to what science can teach us. Um, And in fact, if you go to most parts of the world, you'll find that most people do believe in a spiritual realm. Um, So go to, to Africa, to Asia, South America, the Caribbean. I think I've listed everywhere except, you know, the West. Um... They have no problem believing in the supernatural. All right, so let me ask you, if you have a problem, why should they think that they have sufficient evidence to believe that, but you don't? So, uh, Laman Sana was a professor at Yale. He was an African scholar. Um, and he wrote, and I checked this out with Sean, and he said this is all, he said, this is all good. I don't know, maybe the CD students are going to tell me no, but hopefully they're going to nod their heads. <laughs> so this is what Laman Sana wrote. He said, the core of Africanness is the conviction that the world is full of spirits, good and evil. And the core problem is how to be protected from evil spirits. And the world is imbued with the transcendent, and there's an awareness of a non-material reality that he claims is fundamental to being African. But he says, if you step into a secular university... He says, what's one of the first things they'll require of you? He said, if you're going to be secular, you have to stop believing in spirits and the supernatural. That's all primitive superstition. You can walk down the street, you'll probably be told the same, right? And they'll say, we welcome your culture, but your superstitious beliefs, you have to drop those. Right? So, Sana, Laman Sana goes so far as to say that secularism would take the very heart of Africanness out of you. Okay, but this is how he described Christianity. He said Christianity affirms the supernatural, but tells us that there is one who overcame the spiritual powers. In his words, people sense in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. So, if you have trouble with the supernatural, are you willing, in Sana's word, to tell Africans and Asians and most of the world that they must become remade Europeans? If there's a God who created everything out of nothing, then we should expect that there's more than meets the eye. So anyway, so then Paul says... He says, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay? 
So what's this about? So Paul regularly in his letters refers to rulers and authorities. So if you're familiar with the Bible, that phrase might sound familiar to you. Um, So rulers and authorities are evil spiritual powers. So you might be wondering, what's Paul doing here? If this is confusing to you, you let me put it this way. So J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, he describes evil this way. He says, always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. And Tolkien's right. If you look at history, you see cycles of evil that are seemingly defeated, right? We end a world war. We defeat a tyrant. We end slavery only to be disappointed when a new form of evil takes its place, right? One world war replaces another. One tyrant is replaced by a tyrannical mob. Um, New injustices replace old. You know, it's a mistake to look at the problems in the world and to think, you know, all we need is more education, better cooperation, more reason um, to try just a little harder. Right? Our problem is not that we need a little more. Right? If you think that with the right technique, uh, the right advocacy, the right politicians, that we will progress to utopia, um, then you are hopelessly naive. We are not converging on our perfect world, and you are not converging on your perfect life. And you will be hopelessly disappointed if you think you are. Um, our problem is that always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. Why? Because there's more than meets the eye. There are evil forces that are bigger than bad education and bad politics and bad social norms. There are rulers and authorities. So Paul takes a moment here to say all things, visible and invisible, including the evil spiritual powers, were made by God. Right now, you could you could wonder, you could ask, why is Paul going here? I mean, right. He's just said all things were made by God. So he could just stop. Or if he wants to give some examples, he could give examples of anything he wants. He could say, you know, cats and dogs. I don't know. Cats came after the fall. Um, (laughs) So why does he choose evil powers? Some people didn't laugh. They're cat people. Chris is mad. Why does he go there? Because Paul is talking to people who are hurting, right? Who are struggling and who are suffering. And Paul is being incredibly pastoral and caring, right? He knows that they need to connect the doctrine of God, the creator to their problems, right? So he doesn't just give the doctrine and be like, there it is. Right? Paul is offering them comfort. You know, because they could be sitting there wondering, okay, Jesus made all things. What's in it for me? So Paul addresses evil. And here's what Paul's saying. First, evil is more than just a natural problem. Right? Your struggles and your suffering, they aren't just there. If you sense that your problems are bigger than you can handle, you're right. Your problems are real. You don't just need to try harder or grit your teeth. So what's Paul saying? What's the pastoral word of care? The second thing he's saying is God is sovereign over even the 
evil spiritual realm. Even over the evil spiritual realm. Right? He's reminding us that everything, including the spiritual forces of darkness, were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul will say of Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the same way that all things on earth will one day be restored and redeemed and reconciled to their creator and be in their proper place. Right. One day, even the spiritual authorities will be restored, reconciled, redeemed and put in their proper place to serve Jesus. Right. The spiritual authorities that God made will one day not cause you suffering, but work for for God, therefore work for our good. When God restores all things to their proper place, even the spiritual realm will be redeemed. All right, so let me put this in simpler words for you. You can't defeat evil, but Jesus can. Jesus triumphed over them. If you want comfort in your struggles and in your suffering, this is what Paul says. You can't overcome alone, but there is one who can. If you feel like you can't handle this on your own, that's okay. Because Jesus is sovereign over every single problem you are facing. And he will restore every aspect of creation. So we've seen the creator, the invisible, finally, the rescue plan. So what does this have to do with Christmas after all? God's plan to restore all things, including the spiritual powers, starts by coming as a baby. Now, think about babies. They're the most vulnerable population in the world. Right? If you don't care for them 24-7, they die. Um, When they're born, they can't do anything. Um, And really, they disrupt our lives only because we allow them to. Right? Um, You know, a baby can't declare, I will destroy this crib, and then it happens. But at the same time, a a baby is the very picture of hope and a future. Right? We see babies and we think this is life. And we mean more than just like this is a a thing that's alive. Right? The baby is going to grow. The baby is going to have an impact on the world. Right? The baby is a person right now. um, But the biggest impact is in the future. Right? A whole world is built around a baby, around a child, right? They will develop relationships with their parents, with siblings, with grandparents, with friends. Um, They'll develop their own personalities as reflections of the people they know um, and the experiences they have. Um, The people in their lives will be changed by them, right? So, you know, babies are building a new life. Um, They're not about destroying Um, So since our daughter was born, right, like I find myself, I find our life changing too, right? Now, our boys, if you know them, um, are super active, rough and tumble and fierce, um, I think is the right word. And Eliana, I'm not saying our boys aren't delightful, um, but Eliana is just completely delightful. And... 
I'm confident that she'll also be active and fierce like her brothers. Um, but uh, she has a delightfulness and a sweetness. And if you have a crazy baby and are jealous right now, let me assure you, I have two other kids. Um, but we, you know, we flew with her recently. And if there's anything people on a flight hate, it's having a baby in the plane with them, right? Um, but every person was just enchanted by her, right? They are instantly under her spell. And, you know, as soon as they see her, they burst into this big smiling, and they're a big, like, googly, muttery mess, like, during the whole flight. Um, right? She changes the people around her. Um, the world is different because she's in it. Right? Already, she's built something new. And friends, Jesus came like that. He didn't come to destroy, but to rebuild. Right? He came to restore, not to scrap. Right? To rebuild a new world around himself using what he already created. If Jesus just wanted to start over, right, uh, he would have come as a fireball or he would send meteors and disasters, um, but he didn't, right? He entered into his creation to redeem it. And what this means for you is Jesus rebuilds your life the same way. Right. If you're struggling or if you're full of longing, he comes to you in a way that most of you could reject. Right. You can walk away from a baby. Right. You shouldn't like for a long time, but you can. Right. Now, you know, you can ask, why would Jesus come in such a rejectable way? Because he's coming to rebuild you, not to destroy you. Right. Jesus came in a way that you can reject, but only so that. He comes to you in a way that you can truly receive. Right? Because when you're really struggling in life, right? when you're really broken down, you know, when you really feel alone or at sea, you, know, you can't really respond in a personal way to a conquering king on a horse. Right? Or how are you going to personally relate to some big shot Fortune 500 CEO who says, here I am to save you, here I am to have a personal relationship with you, Right? But Jesus comes to you as you are. He doesn't come to intimidate you. He doesn't come to shame you. He doesn't come to say, get your act together and then give me a call. Right? He could do that. Right? He's the creator of all things. He has every right to say, come on, bucko. Right? But that's not why he came. Jesus takes you as you are, but he doesn't leave you where you are. Right? He meets you where we are. But he won't leave you there. And that's good news because, I mean, who of us really wants to be left where we are? I mean, I don't. I want to be more than I am. I want to overcome my struggles. I don't want to just sit and wallow in them. I want to be more generous, more kind, more loving, more joyful. I want to be less anxious and less selfish and less proud. Right? I need somebody to come into my life where I am, but who won't leave me there, right? A baby won't say to you, oh, I'm not going to be born to you because you're a spiritual mess. Jesus isn't afraid of your spiritual mess. He came to clean it up. So you're not alone in your struggles. So our creator has come to be with us, 
all things were made through him and all things were made for him. And that means Christmas, Jesus come in the flesh, is ultimately about God. Right? Remember, everything God does is ultimately for his glory and that is for our good. Right? Into the fabric of the universe is woven the ways will, that will lead to our greatest flourishing. So, for example, God tells us to forgive one another, right, when we're hurt. Why? Well, it's not because God just decided, let me make up a rule that is really hard. I mean, right, we love to be forgiven, but being on the other end of things is, you know, a different story. Um, but God knows that our lives go better when we forgive. Right? That's why, that's what he created us for. So, practically, you should obey God's rules. It's for your good. Um, but what you really need to do is more than just obey. Into the fabric of the universe is woven the ways that will lead to our greatest flourishing, and God wove himself into that fabric. God didn't just leave us with clues to his design. God wrote himself into the story. God wrote himself into our world to be with us. What you really need to do is grow your personal relationship with Jesus. One very good way you do that is by obeying him. You'll know God better when you do what he tells you. <clears throat> Another way is through reading your Bible, through prayer, through being part of community. Right? Most importantly... Like Brian told us to do. Bring your struggles, bring your difficulties to him. Bring your longings to him. If you're going to truly flourish and have victory in this life, it has to come from God working through you. It has to come from God working in you. So be in constant, deep relationship with God. And here's the really good news. Jesus came in a way that you could reject. Um, yeah, but when, jo when Jesus comes for you, you can't reject him. Right? So, for example, think about Mary. Right? She couldn't get away from him. Right? Think about it. She's got Jesus growing in her belly. You know, you might be worried, maybe I'm going to miss Jesus. Maybe I won't make the right decision. Right? You know, you know, I couldn't handle an intimidating general CEO, doctor, lawyer, scary person coming into my life. Um, but what if I don't have the strength to reach for this baby? When Jesus comes for you, there's no getting away from him. Right? He comes in gentleness, but he still comes as a sovereign God who created all things. And that includes you. Right? All things were created through him and for him. And if you feel God pulling you toward him today, go. Go to him. His grace is irresistible. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you created us. God, that, that our intuitions are right, that there is meaning and purpose and joy and love and beauty to be found. And that we were made for more than just splashing around this, in this puddle we call earth. But God, we were made for you and you love us. And we are your children, and you delight to bless us, Lord. And you came into this world to rescue us. 
God, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive you. Um, God, um, make your grace irresistible to us. God, many of us were hurt, we're struggling, we're broken, and this is a hard season. Um, God, may you be the solve, may you be the balm, may you be um, the comfort to us. May you be the light in the darkness. And God, as we carry you around in our broken jars, broken vessels, um, may we be a light into a dying world. God, may we show others um, your glory, your majesty for their good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.